This is a Triple J podcast. Hello, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl. And I want to quickly start off this episode by saying a big thank you to anyone who's left us a review. We see it, we appreciate it. Someone gave us five stars saying best podcast ever, makes me think and lets me learn while I go to bed at night. Love it so much. I have listened to every podcast, so I'm always excited to see when there is a new one out. Highly recommend. Kiwi, you said, I always love the Dr. Carl podcast and often tell my friends and family random facts from here. Always positive and hopeful in terms of climate change and other major problems. Love the live shows. These reviews help boost us in the feed. They help more people find the Science with Dr. Carl podcast. So we really appreciate it, whether you leave them on Apple Podcasts, like on Spotify, or of course, follow on the Triple J app. Let's get into this episode where we chatted about how there are so many products, but why does newspaper always seem to do the job when it comes to cleaning glass? Could you change your dominant hand from left to right or right to left? And we meet a guy who does barefoot skiing. Wild. All of that and more in this episode. Let's get into it. Carl, we've got a couple of follow-ups from last week. Now, we had a caller who said that after she was, well, when she was really tired and after she had had an orgasm, immediately cold all over her body, you know, even though her partner said, no, you're hot, you know what I mean? I can feel you and you feel hot, but just that kind of chill that would come over her. We named it the cold gasm. You named it. I named it. Look, yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. You take credit for it. it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When that word makes it in the English language, it shall be your word. Yes. What's the deal? You feel like you've gotten a follow-up for this one. Yeah, I've gone looking. Uh, So firstly, with regard to people feeling cold after exercise, so then we'll get on to orgasm, which is kind of related. So the body gets hot, it tries to cool down, and you get extra blood flow to the skin and sweating, which cools you down, and sometimes it doesn't switch off straight away. And when it doesn't switch off straight away, when it continues for too long, you can have the feeling of cold in some small percentage of people after doing exercise. And also in a small percentage of people doing exercise, the opposite happens just to show that the body's messy. And if you're doing really extreme exercise, your metabolic rate can stay high for hours. Mm. So, But in general, people who have these temperature disturbance after exercise, very small percentage of the people who do exercise. Same with orgasm. So I had to go and find Dr. Peggy, who turns out to be medical doctor and go all the way there. And so there's two categories here. One is you've just got extra blood flowing into the genital areas and then as the hot blood flows back, other parts of the body have the blood flowing back as well. And so in that case, they feel colder and it's in a small percentage of people after orgasm and you just pull up the blankets and you relax. But there has a, there is another one. Mm-hmm. There's another cause, which is the adrenaline crash. So uh, some people get into sex in a big way and they have a, for some unknown reason, they get lots and lots of adrenaline running and then it just crashes. It just doesn't taper off. It just crashes. And they can have anything from feeling cold and restless legs where you get, uh, restless legs is terrible. I've mm. had it once. Uh, jittery legs, muscle spasms, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so the thing to do there is to avoid coffee and other stimulants before sex if your feeling of temperature cold after the orgasm is due to the adrenaline crash. And then I was looking and I found another paper called Did You Climax or Are You Just Laughing at Me? Rare Phenomena Associated with Orgasm. What? This is from the journal called Sexual Medicine Reviews in 2017. And so some of the things that people can have are... Uh, they, they can have sort of pseudo-epileptic type fits. They spasm away or they can cry. 
mm. and um, uh, depression and they can have pain with orgasm, which sounds awfully terrible, and they can have weird focal, which is a fancy word meaning specific to one area, pain sensations. So you have sex and the bottom of your right foot hurts, mm. always the right foot or the left foot or whatever it is. And we don't know there's some sort of cross-wiring and headache. That's so interesting. So if someone, if you, you know, sleeping with someone and they tend to cry afterwards or maybe they get a bit depressed or maybe they go into themselves, maybe it's it's really is, isn't you, it's them. It's them. It's and not it's, you, it's me. And it's okay. So it's called, uh, it's called Did You Climax or Are You Just Laughing At Me? We That's have another follow-up on follow up. the questions, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, Let's later. take one from Liv in Werribee. Dr. Liv. Dr. Liv, you've got a question about muscles. Yes, morning, doctors. Dr. Um, I was just wondering, um, are we connected to all our muscles in our body? Um, so you know how some people can move their ears and other people's can't? And then, you know, there's that video of those two kids moving their eyebrows, mm. like, and then we can't. So are we connected to them all? Yes, but the connections are of different strength and you can train it up. So what they found with regard to moving your ears, if you aim your camera on your phone at your ear and then send that to the TV and then just try stuff. And after about 15 minutes, you can see your ear moving and you're not too sure what you did. And you keep on going. After an hour, you'll, it's really exhausting. You'll be able to move your ears. And if you practice that for a few days, you'll be able to move your ears any time you like. I'm trying to move them now. Uh, you, need the, you need the feedback. You need the feedback thing so you can see what you're doing. Yeah. And it is exhausting um, because you're using muscles that, uh, continuously that don't normally get used continuously. But you can, Dr. Olivia, you can train yourself to move your ears. Uh, you just don't normally do it. It's sort of a way of maybe a secret message code to your partner. Um, let's get out of here or something mm. like that. I don't know. It could be useful. Use it in, yeah. Have I inspired that... you, Dr. Liv, to go and learn how to do your ears, move your ears or not really? Yeah, well, I, I can move one of my ears. I can't move the other one. Okay. Look, can you do the experiment? And if you do the experiment, and whichever way it goes, if you report back to us next week, we will send you a Triple J fun pack and a book. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Liv, you better follow up. There will be homework. There will be homework. We've got Jeremy here on the Central Coast. Now, Jeremy, you used to help your dad repair cars and you noticed something while you were doing it. Tell us tell us what happened. Yes, unfortunately, now that we know we used to wash our parts and hands in petrol, but the petrol was always red. And now I notice when using petrol for lawnmowers and the like, it's clear. So was that a dye or was the lead the red colour. Yeah, they actually put uh, – no, the, the lead was um, not red and the good thing about the lead was that it improved the octane rating of the fuel so it wouldn't pre-ignite, it wouldn't go bang too early and it virtually doubled the fuel economy of cars um, but it made people – it affected people's brains around the world and we banned lead except in aeroplane fuels. So there are some – small aeroplanes that run on piston engines rather than turbines, rather than jet engines, and they use leaded fuel and we're trying to get that out because it turns out that around airports, small airports where they use this leaded fuel, there's extra lead in the air and the kids end up with brain problems and all that sort of stuff. So to answer your question about the dye, the dye was there to indicate the different octane ratings of the fuel. Oh. Uh, now, but I have noticed that they don't put that dye in anymore. So if there's somebody who's an expert in that field, like a catalytic chemist or something, can you please ring in and tell us? 
We've got Jess in Shepparton. Dr. Jess. What's your question? Hello, doctors. Dr. Jess. Um, I was just wondering, why does heat heal and how does it heal? Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Did I mention the big bruise on my leg? Well, how'd you get that? Ah, so I was doing, um, what do you call them, the... Uh, rowing machine? Rowing machine. No, I, I, with weights. Oh, so okay. The, I, so I was doing the seated rows and nice. I, 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 I worked my way down through the weights and um, I had a two and a half kilogram weight just sitting on top of the machine um, off to the side and I must have just, it never happened before in years mm. and suddenly the weight fa- fell down and landed on my shin. And so Ouch. I immediately went downstairs because I, I wanted to do something about it. I wasn't too sure what. And it blew up in – imagine you get an, a chicken egg and you cut it in half long oh. ways. I had a bruise that big. Oh, my gosh. As big as half a chicken egg. Yeah. In this case, heat was not the answer. So what I did was put a tight bandage around that and then get a whole bunch of ice, put it in a plastic bag and wrap that around it, kept my leg up for about an hour and blow me down. It went away. Wow. So in that particular – The bruise itself. Yeah, so the bruise went away and I really thought I'd have a bruise. I thought I'd have some bleeding on the skin or, you know, some discoloration or at least a bulge. I had nothing. So in some cases, heat is not good. You actually want to go for cold. Now, what sort of cases, Jess, are you thinking of where heat can heal? Um, Like when I've got cramps, I'll get the hot water pack out. Or even, or wow. even deep heat when you're yeah. when you've got muscle uh, strains or something, or you've just had a massage or a remedial massage, and they'll use hot stones. Like, what can heat do? I don't know why, uh, but I did find out about cold gasm, so I think I've got some homework. Jess, look, hang in next week. I'll go and read up all about heat. I've got a few half-baked ideas. You deserve better than that. I'll give you Mm. something decent next week. Do you think the heat just makes the muscle more receptive to pain relief or something like that? Makes the muscles softer or... Yeah. The, the trouble is the human body's too complicated. So, like, for example, when I went through medical school, there were 400 different types of cells in the body, like uh, lung and liver and heart and a whole bunch of different variations on those. And in 2017, the neuroscientists said, look, we're seeing weird stuff in the brain. We need to spend some money and go looking properly. And they went looking properly and the results came out in December last year that in the brain there are 3,300 different types of brain cells that we didn't even know about. Whoa. We knew about five, <gasps> right? And so people say, where's consciousness held? We don't know. So, so Jess, I suspect the answer is going to be complex. I'll try and give you a good answer next week, why heat heals. You've given him homework. Thank I love you, it. Jess. Oh, I'm thanking her for giving me homework. <laughs> yes, thank you, Jess. <laughs> Absolutely not. We've got Jason in Horsham here. Now, Jason, you were barefoot skiing on the long weekend. Where were you? Yeah, we sure were. We were uh, we were up at Robinvale on the Murray. Beautiful. Isn't that scary? Uh, not not really. Once you have a few stacks and get used to it, it's not too bad. Barefoot skiing is that when you are you on two skis or one? Uh, zero. So obviously what? Uh, Z- on your, your feet barefoot. <gasps> but how do you get up to speed? How do you do that? Yeah. Uh, there's different ways of starting, but we uh, we try and start. With uh, no boards, no nothing, just a wetsuit and you get dragged out of the water sitting on your bum and get up to speed and slowly stand up. You've got to have the wetsuit because there have been cases where people land on the water at high speed, at high speed and a whole jet of water comes up their bum and then they're kind of getting an enema in the stream and bad things can happen sometimes if it comes through at too high a speed. So you've got to have sort of a, a decent leg, like, like halfway down your thigh or something. Yeah, we get uh, full, well, not full body, but yeah, down to your thigh and over your shoulders in one piece and some really good padding on the on the backside. What do you mean if you have a stack? Doesn't it hurt? 
Oh, definitely, yeah. There's a few uh, few cartwheels involved. Mm. Well, you look, can break stuff anyway. J- look, Jason. Jason, you do have a science question attached to this. And, and there, there we've got, but barefoot. I know. It's crazy. Well, yeah. that kind of comes into your question, right, Jace? What, yes. what do you want to know? Um, so we're just sort of having a discussion on the weekend when we were doing it. Um, we we typically barefoot at say 38 mile per hour, which is set via GPS speed, um, which would be ground speed travel. But the water current was flowing at around two mile an hour. So we're just wondering. Are we skiing one way at 40 mile an hour and the other way at 36? And how does that um, correlate with like water resistance? Right. Okay. So uh, you have now entered the wonderful land of relativity. So you might have heard of Einstein. And in fact, it goes way back to Isaac Newton and to Galileo. And so Galileo is sitting on a ship in, a ship in some bay and he's under decks. And it's a really quiet day and the ship's not moving. And then suddenly, the ship, he looks out the window and the ship is moving and he can't pick it. And he suddenly thought, why can't I pick it? And he says, because I'm, I'm, I'm not accelerating. And so I've got a zero velocity relative to the ship, but I've got a certain velocity relative to the water. In your case, your velocity relative to the water is the same. If the boat speedo says 38 miles per hour, which I think if you translate that into metric is 47 cubic furlongs per square second per honeybee or something weird unit like that. So, But your speed is always 38 miles per hour relative to the water. But relative to the dry land, it's plus or minus two miles an hour if the current's moving at two miles an hour. Even though, like... If we're going by, say, a, a water wheel on the boat, that would be via the the water relative to the water. But because it's via GPS, we'd be travelling at oh, land speed. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. You, you set your speed that which you move the boat at by a GPS. Yeah. Okay, so that's relative to the land. So in that case, so uh, if it's set relative to the land at 36, on one occasion you're doing 34, going the other direction you're doing 38. Yeah. Yep. So, so you are now learning about relative frames, of, re- relative frames, and so if you're really bored, you can go and look up inertial frames of ref- reference on Wikipedia, and um, we'll see you several hours after you've read your way through that. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. Okay. Thank you. Does that make sense, Thanks Jason? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, so you're, they're picking their speed relative to the land. Right. And in fact, GPS is actually more accurate than your speedo in most cases because your speedo is calibrated to read plus uh, up to plus 10% faster but never slower. So normally you've sort of got your range and it's plus or minus a certain amount. Mm. But with cars, you can get bad things happen if you go too fast and there's speeding fines. So all speedos are calibrated not at that speed plus or minus a little bit but for uh, say five to ten percent faster down to that speed, mm. so you you can never say oh the speedo's wrong. No, the speedo's actually in your favour, reading faster than you're actually travelling. Now we were chatting about heat being used to heal. Mm. You know, be it heat packs or deep heat things like that. Sam, you said for sports injuries, it's normally ice it for the first three days, then heat therapy. I believe the heat is to draw blood into the area to encourage the natural healing process. Oh, so that'll make the blood vessels open up. Okay, that, that's mm. one reason. Thank you very much. I didn't think of that. And last week, we met someone who had had an injury on their finger, which meant that they didn't move it for years and years. And the creases on their finger where the knuckle is disappeared or became smooth. Did we have a follow-up on that this yeah. week? Yeah. So you and I were both very 
sceptical and how do you know they're keeping their fingers straight for <laughs> years? And the answer was they had an injury so the finger cannot be bent and blow me down. They said the, wrinkle, the wrinkles went away. And then I got an email from somebody whose aunt got polio. So polio is very rare because the vaccines are just so good. Um, and she couldn't move her neck and she had no wrinkles on her neck. Wow. Yeah, and the back of her hands was really smooth because she couldn't move her hands and so she just had no wrinkles. So we're getting some what they call ground truth that this can be the case. Mm. And then also I made a mistake last week when I was talking about getting uh, heat out of the ocean. There is a system called OTEC, Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion, You can use the temperature difference between the surface and the deep ocean to generate energy. I wrongly said that it will self-siphon. No, it will not. But look up OTEC, and there are a few OTEC units getting energy from the deep ocean. Kind of useful for little tiny islands that are a long way from anywhere, like in the Pacific where they've got access to deep ocean and they don't want to bring in fossil fuels to get their electricity. They can get their electricity by working on it. We haven't got really big units going. The first one starting up next year, a really big one. We've got Mark here. Now, Dr. Mark, you've got a Dr. question Mark. about vision. Yeah, good morning, doctors. Dr. Mark. Uh, I was just wondering, why is it that some people can see further away quite clearly, but then they can't see things close up, like read a book, for example? Mm. Ah, there's a few different factors there. One is that you've got two lenses in your eye that bend the light. The lens, The first lens is called the cornea. And that's right at the very front of the eye. You measure height in metres and weight in kilograms. So you measure the power of a lens in a funny unit called a diopter. And the lens, the the cornea bends the light by, I think it's got 40 diopters. And then inside the eye, you've got a thing called the lens, which is adjustable. And when you've sort of born and soon after, it's adjustable from, say, 0 to 15 diopters. And once you get to 40, it's only adjustable about one or two diopters. And my eyes are about six and seven diopters. And my daughter Lola, when she was very young, was able to look through my glasses and see see things sharply at six diopters and she was able to compensate because she had that two to 15 range of Mm. diopters. But, you know, when you get like about 20, you you, you begin to lose most of it. So in the case of people having good near vision and bad far vision or vice versa, the eyeball is of a certain size such that with the combination of the lens at the front called the cornea, the lens inside called the lens, which is adjustable but gets, gets less adjustable with age, that the image either lands hands on the uh, retina exactly for close range or far range, but not both, right? And so in my case, my eyeball is large, so therefore the image lands in front, um, and then you end up with me having to wear glasses for distance vision. Close vision is fine. Now, it's, we think it's due, there's an epidemic of it in Taiwan where they study, the students at school study really hard and the lights are not very bright and 80% of high school students have to wear glasses for distant vision and the treatment is that every hour, not the treatment but the prevention, is that every hour you stop And just look out the window for five minutes. Stare at something far away. And when you do do reading close range, have a really bright light. Now, this sounds weird Mm. because listening to a very quiet sound doesn't make you deafer. It doesn't interfere with your hearing. But reading under very dim light 
does interfere with your vision and a chemical called dopamine is involved. So that's one factor with the vision. Is, is that kind of answering your question there, Dr. Mark? A very long answer. I think I'll have to catch that up on the podcast. Okay, well, <laughs> a, I'll add an extra bit. So the average yep. vision is twenty twenty. if you're in America, which means that you can see at 20 feet what the average person can see at 20 feet, whereas in everywhere else in the world we call it 6'6". Six, six. You can see at 6 metres what the average person can see at 6 metres. Um, the average person sees 6'6". Six, six. Somebody who's really good can see six on four. So they can see at six metres what the average person sees at four metres. Um, and maybe there's a few people who can see six on three. Fred Hollows and Professor Taylor were both involved with finding a tribe of Indigenous Australians who spent a lot of time travelling and that was among the last nomads found in Australia, and their vision wasn't six on six or six on three, it was six on one and a half. Wow. It was the sharpest vision ever measured in any humans on the face of the planet, and the weird thing was, it wasn't just in the people who were teenagers, it were people who were really old, who were 40, and the reason that that evolved was that they'd be travelling across the deserts um, in the top left-hand corner of Australia, and they'd see where the heck is water, and some older person who had memory and vision would say, I remember when I was a kid, we go past those two little bumps and we turn left and walk for half a day and there's water. So that's why the sharp vision maintained itself into older age. We've got Marion here. Now, Marion, we love cleaning, Carl and I. We love cleaning. Cleaning is good. Mm -hmm. What's your question? I'm wondering why crumpled up newspaper and a bit of White vinegar in water will give the best, cleanest, smear-free windows. And that's a thing, Marion. You've tried squeegees. You've cr- tried cloths. You've tried sponges. Yep. Uh, yep. Carl, why is it that the newspaper seems to be the best option? Uh, firstly, the newspaper itself is relatively smooth and non-abrasive, and then that means that when you use it with something like vinegar, it can pick up the stuff on top of the glass that's it'll come off fairly easily and it will not scratch the glass. But then you've got the ink. Now, the ink itself contains a combination of oils and charcoal and stuff and that gives it an extra bit of abrasiveness. Then the paper itself is relatively absorbent and then finally the paper is lint-free. So you, if you're using a tissue paper, mm. you leave behind a little bits. So the newspaper is the best. Okay. However, um, because we live in a commie, lefty, woke society, they're changing the ink to be fully biodegradable. So it's good because the ink was the thing that provided the abrasion. It's not quite as good as it used to be, but really? it's still pretty good. Because ah. uh, So now I tear up uh, newspapers every now and then to put into the compost rather than recycle it to fix the PK ratio. Somebody told me what it was anyway. Uh, I've been, you know, I've been doing compost wrong for about 10 years. Really? I haven't been throwing enough paper and cardboard into it. So can you still put that type of paper the, in your compost yeah. with the biodegradable ink? Yeah, yeah, the new newspapers you can and I will throw through a bit of other paper even though I know I shouldn't but I just try to feed everything. To compost. I can't believe that you throw paper and vegetable scraps into this bucket and then you leave it in the yard for a bit and it turns into dirt with worms in it. Mm. Oh, man, I find that astonishing. We've got Craig in Mooloola Valley. Craig, what's your question? Craig, welcome, Hey, Dr. morning, Craig. doctors. Just a quick one. If I put a bucket out in the rain and then get a tape measure and there's 200 mils of water in there, 
Did we have 200 mils of rain? Yes. When you say tape measure, do you mean 200 millimetres? Yeah, 200 millimetres, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, As as opposed to mils in terms of milliliters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Um, Yes, but there's a whole bunch of considerations. You've got, if you look up the BOM, Bureau of Meteorology website, they will tell you what the considerations are. Like you can't have a bucket between two buildings. Right, it's got to have free access to the rain coming at it from all directions, and the sides can't be tapered; they have to be vertical. And I can't, I can't remember whether it has to be on the ground or a certain distance up. But that's the basic principle: that you have a cylinder in under specified conditions, and if that catches two hundred millimeters of rain. That's what you get. By the way, I remember when I was a kid, 25 millimetres of rain an inch was a lot in 24 hours. Now we're talking about 300 millimetres or a foot in a day. Wow. Mate, this global warming thing. So there's been various events that the Bureau of Meteorology kind of didn't exactly predict. And in each case, like you remember with Jasper, mm. and so the cyclone Jasper hit last year the top end of Australia in Queensland and then there was this massive flooding and people say you didn't predict it and you didn't tell us and it turns out that that flood, flooding was the worst ever recorded in the history of all of the time we've spent there. So there's all these extreme weather events that are tipping things off. Mm. We've got a follow-up text here from Jason in Kingsford, a neuroscientist. Pain relief from heat is because the thermoceptors compete for the other pain signals, so they mask it, similar to rubbing for relief. Oh, my God. Thank God. I knew there was a whole lot of stuff I was missing. And, Jason, you found – I didn't know what I was missing. I knew I was missing something. So you got – say that again. You're trying to feed two sets of different signals to the brain, pain and heat. And if you're doing enough heat, then that overrides the pain? Yeah, you're distracting it almost. Wow. The thermoceptors compete for the other pain signals so they mask it. Thank you so much, Dr. Jason. We are in the midst of Science with Dr. Carl and this Saturday, February 3, on Double J, we are counting down the hottest 100 of 2003. Now, it was a big year for one song in particular. So, Outcast Hey Ya, you might remember the video for this one, particularly around this line, Shake It Like a Polaroid Picture, where everyone in the audience was shaking Polaroid pictures. Dr. Carl, our fam at Double J actually put it to you and wanted to know, does that do anything? Does that actually develop the photo any quicker? Should you shake a Polaroid picture once you've taken it? You can shake it, but it does not make it develop more quickly. So it was invented by Edwin Land, who was a very clever person, who went to university and at the end of first year university thought, oh, I know how to make polarised plastic and that's a really useful material. Dropped out of university, got fabulously wealthy, did all sorts of secret stuff for the American government involving putting some of his special film on satellites, taking photographs of the Soviet Union, dropping them out of satellites and catching them on the way down to the ground. With with aeroplanes, catching the film on the way down to the ground. I know, it was crazy. And so his daughter at one stage said, Daddy, why do we have to wait for the film? Why do we have to wait a week for the film to get processed? And so he listened to his daughter and he said, why do I have to wait for a week? And he said, well, you don't. 
I can think of a way you do it. So he invented this Polaroid film. So polarised light, Polaroid, the whole thing. And it goes back to the old days of where you had chemical film instead of that new electronic stuff that we have nowadays. And so you'd get some film or some paper to give you the final image and you'd put it in a tank of liquid and there were chemicals and the paper had chemicals and that would react with the liquid and it'd be a two-way reaction and if you just left it in one spot, there'd be a slight alteration of the chemistry because in that little spot there was a lot of black or a lot of white and so the chemicals would be slightly different from one place to another and you'd get slightly uneven processing. So they said, oh, you've got to swirl it around to even it out and so because you would swirl around the liquid in the tank, um, people thought, well, you have to do the same thing to a Polaroid or they just wanted to have fun. So really, <laughs> if you wanted to make it, it, would, it, scientifically, it would be swirl it like a Polaroid picture. Swirl oh it like a Polaroid Hang picture. Hang on. <laughs> do, do we have to take away their position in the 2003 Hottest 100 because of their scientific I think, inexactitude? I think we do. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm going to write a letter to the Nobel Prize Committee about this. We've got Jonathan from Castle Hill. Jonathan... What's your question? It kind of involves driving. Ah, good morning, doctors. Good morning. So I was wondering, um, is there a role of empathy uh, when you're driving? So I recently, my brother fell asleep in the passenger seat and I started to feel quite heavy, which became you know, a little bit dangerous. So I had to pull over a few streets further away. So I was wondering, wondering if people's behaviour in a car can influence the driver. Mm. Oh, I would say yes, and I think that you've actually answered the question by thinking empathy. I think it's part of the, we're all a group, because individual humans are very weak, but together as a group we're strong, so it's like, oh, you're tired, so I'll be with you and I'll be tired too. That's the best answer I got. You got anything better than that? No, but all I know is that I feel really guilty when, if we're on a family car drive or anything like that, and... I'm asleep in the back seat and mum's also asleep in the front and dad's on his own. So I try and chat to him a bit. There could be the monotony thing where you haven't got anybody to talk to yeah. and you're out of radio reception. Which well, doesn't it is also mm-hmm. about the empathetic yawning thing that we talked about as well. Does ah. that kind of cross over into the sleep world? That is a brilliant thought. Yes. You're what a real scientist. So if empathy is at work, when you can catch a yawn, then empathy would be at work when you can catch a tiredness. A sleep? A sleepiness thing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, good on you, Jono, for yeah. recognising that you were tired and, you know, taking a breather. Yeah, and also coming up with the answer because you gave the, yeah. well, we think that's the right answer. If anybody got a better answer, please look it up and contact us. Yeah, we've got Brendan, Brendan? from Griffin. Dr. I guess Brendan? speaking about tiredness and sleep, you got a question about consciousness. I do. Morning, doctors. Dr. Brendan? I'm just fascinated with uh, consciousness, read some articles, but I don't understand them. Um, but yeah, just where science is understanding uh, regarding consciousness and particularly uh, the role of quantum entanglement, what does that have to do with, with it potentially? So consciousness and quantum entanglement. Wow. Carl, do you want to tell us what <coughs> quantum entanglement is? A quantum entanglement is a weird action at a distance which kind of seems to go instantaneously or if you like faster than the speed of light. So suppose you have an atomic reaction and two particles are created, a particle and an antiparticle like a a B and a B minus, they're they're opposite particles, and they take off in different directions and you don't know which they are. And in fact, they have not decided what they are. This is a weird thing about the quantum world that bothers me, that the particle is both a B and a B minus or... It's both things at the same time until you look at it. And the question that bothers me is, how does it know I'm looking at it? 
before it decides to become a B or a B minus. And so when you've got these in quantum entanglement, the two particles can be like, you know, hundreds of thousands of light years apart. And if you look at one, you then force it to become a B and then the other one becomes a B minus, the the mirror image of it. And how that happens, we don't know. It doesn't make sense. Einstein didn't like it. He called it freaky action at a distance. Is that related to consciousness? You kind of have to blame Edwin Schrodinger. He, He wrote a whole lot of stuff. And it's very interesting, but it doesn't get me any closer to understanding. So the bottom line is, it might be related, it might not be. We don't know where it exists in the brain, and there's 3,300 different types of cells, and we don't know what they do, so how can we work out where consciousness is? Is that the same Schrodinger as Schrodinger's cat fame? That's him, yeah. Mm. He was also the guy who solved the tea mystery. What's that? Well, you know this whole centrifugal force type thingy, but when you have tea with some tea leaves uh, and you stir it, the tea leaves end up in the centre, oh. not the oh, outside. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, Einstein was having a cup of tea with him and said, how come the tea leaves are in the centre instead of in the outside? And Schrodinger had to think about it for a while, but he came up with the answer. So he's a really smart guy. So what was the answer? That you're getting a uh, the, the stirring, which forces stuff to the outside, actually sets up a current where the um, hot tea rises in the centre, then at the top goes out in all directions, like the spokes of a bicycle wall, hits the side wall of the cup of tea and then goes down, and then being pushed by the, the tea behind it, then heads towards the centre and then comes up the middle again. And ah. then the tea leaves are a little bit heavier and they get left behind. And he was clever enough to work that out, whereas Einstein couldn't. We've got Got scratch here now. Scratch, scratch, you got a question about you know drinking a bev. In fact, I'll let you explain. What do you reckon? Oh uh, yeah, hey guys. Um, I was just wondering when you're yeah, having a drink or two, um, do you get drunk faster or more drunk when you drink through a straw? What have you found in your experience? Well, I've always heard it being spoken about, but I just haven't been able to figure out if it's true or not. Mm. Ah, so with regard to alcohol, um, you can get people to think that they're drunk and behave like they're drunk when you're feeding them orange juice with vodka. And then if you take out the vodka, they keep on getting drunker and drunker. So it's the thought there might be something there that makes them drunker. Secondly, I've spoken with a few bartenders who have told me that when they've got certain customers that they know well who might have a tendency to get a bit aggro and they're having a certain type of alcohol, what they'll do is, like like a vodka, what they'll do is they'll serve them like the mixer and then put a smear of vodka on the glass and they'll keep on getting drunker but without the aggro. So just thinking that there's alcohol there can set them off. So with regard to the alcohol straw thing, the experiment's been done. It doesn't make you drunker. And in fact, the way that you metabolize alcohol is really weird. So it goes into your stomach. That's a little organ where it's very muscular. It makes acid. And then it gets released into the small intestine where it gets absorbed. Now, here's a weird thing. If you have a huge volume of stuff, of food that you eat or liquid or, or a little amount, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change it. Stuff gets released from the stomach into the small intestine, I think at about three or four calories per minute. And so you can't speed it up or slow it down. It it just follows its own uh, mechanism. So I'm I'm tending to debunk it a bit, Dr. Scratch. No worries. That's all right. And you know what? And paper straws at the moment annoy. Like they're good for the environment, but get all soggy, can be annoying to drink through. 
Uh, well, I've got a metal stainless steel straw. Nice. How do you clean the inside of it? You've got to get a little, a little, uh, almost like a little internal brush, like a little bottle brush. Yeah. Mate, I've got a bottle. I've got a few bottle brushes, but they're only good down to about a centimetre. And the diameter of a drinking store is millimetres, not a centimetre. Mm-hmm. Does anybody make a really skinny bottle brush? Well, yeah, there's tiny ones, tiny ones. Really? Yeah. The world of online <laughs> and Aladdin's cave of wonder. <laughs> We've got Kimberly on Darawal Country. Kimberly, what what happened to your son? He chopped off the top half of his right thumb oh. in an accident. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty awful at the time. Yeah. And, and now it's it's all healed up. He's going well, but it's opened this debate in our family about the dominance of your left and your right hand. He so he's right-handed. His father is probably legitimately ambidextrous. We're just wondering, can can our son actually change the dominance it will always just be something he has to work at right his, so, clum- his right hand's really clumsy now so he's right-handed it was the right thumb that was impacted so now you're trying to train him to write with his left hand writing or just um, texting um yeah. everything yeah yeah, yeah. How, how old is he He's 26. Oh, wow oh my gosh kid. oh yes okay. an adult he's a big guy mm. <laughs> okay it's harder It'd be easier if he was pre-puberty, but he can definitely do it with hard work. There is a certain degree, which varies from people to people, of inherently one hand or the other. So some people can be really one hand or the other or ambidextrous, and there's a spectrum. So there will be some degree of frustration, but he can work on it and get it a lot better than he currently is. It'll be as though he's starting from scratch. So you're looking at years of work, but he can do it, but it won't be, it might be as good as his right hand was and it might not be, but work will do it. What do you think about the debate that it's opened up about nature versus nurture? Um, we are inherently wired differently and we're not too sure. So 90% of people are right-handed, 80% right-footed, 70% right-eyed and 60% right-eared. And so some people tend to use one eye rather than the other. You can tell just by blocking the eye. There is an, look, there, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it'll be a lot of hard work. I'm sorry. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Kimberly. We've got Les from Balcom Hill. Now, Les, you've got a question about the speed of light. Yes. Um, I was told that um, because of Einstein, that the speed of light is absolute and nothing can go faster than it. But I was, uh, the question I have is you've got stars either side of the Earth and their light falls upon us. Um, you know, they're equidistant from us but their light falls upon us at the same time. So the, the light edge reaches uh, relative to each other twice the speed of light. Ah, Is that right? No, because Einstein also said another thing, which he did as a thought experiment. He used to do these really good thought experiments. He's really a great ideas person. And here it is. The speed of light is constant for every observer. Now, I'll do some reading up on that and try to go with the um, twin paradox and the car driving past you at the, almost the speed of light when it turns on its headlights. Now, we don't have time here, but go down that pathway. But the basic principle is that every observer, no matter what their velocity, always sees the speed of light as 300,000 kilometres a second. Thanks so much for listening to Science with Dr. Carl. Make sure you're subscribed so you are the first to know when a new episode drops. This one was produced by Sarah Harvey. I'm Lucy Smith, and I'll catch you next week. Bye. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. 
Each day, we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.